today is not just a, a, a big day for us as a delegation, us as a party, us as a movement, but this is a big day for activists all over the country and for frontline communities all over the country. Today is a big day for people who have been left behind. Today is a big day for workers in Appalachia. Today is a big day for children that have been breathing dirty air in the South Bronx. Today is a really good day for families who have been enduring the injustices of drinking dirty water or who have seen their living rooms being flooded in with the waves of flooded in with the, with the waves of uh, rising sea, sea levels. And today, I think, is a really big day for our economy, the labor movement, the social justice movement, indigenous peoples, and people all over the United States of America. Welcome back to Trench Warfare Politics. That clip was obviously the voice of U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as everyone knows her. This podcast is dedicated solely to her, her agenda through the Green New Deal, who she is, what she believes, how she got here, kind of like what I did with John Kerry in the last podcast. And we're going to break these people down until we know who exactly they really are. Now, as you heard in that audio clip right there, as usual, the Democrats slash Marxist way is to bring nothing but division it's never ending unity, it's always division. And you heard her just now in that, dividing everything down into some type of movement, activist, economy, labor, social justice movement, indigenous, whatever they can do to divide, that's what they do. There's never any unity. Now in that, you also heard, and I'm just going to break this clip down a little bit, but you heard her talking about all the different false narratives, about the drinking water, about the Native Americans. And I broke that all down in the very beginning when I first started breaking down the Biden-Sanders Communist Manifesto, and especially this section that she and John Kerry and several others authored regarding climate crisis and environmental justice. Now, I told you in, in that one about how they brought out the drinking water from Flint, Michigan, and how Flint, Michigan has been under Democrat control for decades. It had nothing to do with anything with the climate or environmental justice, just Democrat ineptness, as always. I also told you about when she says Native Americans, she's talking about the Navajo Nation, and I broke that down about the Navajo Nation in the first podcast as well, and how the Navajo, Navajo Nation, as I misspoke in the first one, I said it's the size of Connecticut. It's actually the size of West Virginia, 27,000 square miles, and how desolate and isolated it is and how isolated some housing out there is and there's no way that they can get the infrastructure to it. It's just what it, it is what it is when you're out in the middle of that kind of country. But I broke it down also into how much it is of fraud, waste, and abuse of 1.66 billion taxpayer dollars that go to the Navajo Nation and have gone to the Navajo Nation. What I'm going to do first before I go into breaking that clip down even more is I'm going to just go into her, her biography, who she is, where she came from, what she's done. And the reason I'm doing these things is as I stated in the other 
podcast is I want everybody to get to where Sun Tzu said in his quote about knowing your enemies, where he said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. My goal is to get everyone into that first stanza, knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. Because we do have an enemy in this country, and it's the Marxist left. And make no doubt about it, you are their enemy if you do not bow down to the religion of environment and their green agenda and Green New Deal coming all the way down from the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. Getting into AOC and her biography and where she comes from, she's born in New York City in the Bronx back in 1989. She was the youngest woman to ever be elected to Congress at the age of 29. She graduated cum laude from Boston University in 2011 with a Bachelor of Arts in both international relations and economics. While she was there at Boston University, she was an intern for Senator Ted Kennedy, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts for a long, long time. She worked in his foreign affairs and immigration issues section of his office. During the 2016 presidential campaign, she worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign. So that tells you where she is. She describes herself as a Democrat socialist. So after the 2016 campaign, she got in her car and she drove across America and went to Flint, Michigan, where obviously she learned about the drinking water problem over there. She went over to Standing Rock after that during the XL pipeline where people were protesting against that. They left actually more trash all over the Indian reservation than was ever there before. You can go back and watch the YouTube and see all of that. And so after she left there, that's when she realized that uh, to be effective, you had to have access to wealth, social influence, and power, all that kind of stuff. So she came back home, and she got a phone call from a group called Brand New Congress. Now, Brand New Congress later became Justice Democrats. And there's a lot of people behind Justice Democrats, a lot of far-left people behind Justice Democrats, including the founder of Young Turks, Cenk Uger. I'll get into that in a little while and break that down further into the podcast. But for right now, just know that's who founded and started Justice Democrats. And they were out recruiting progressive candidates, and they held what was called a casting call because they had people that were sending nominations to this group because that's what this group was doing. They were looking for people to come in and like Hollywood does auditions, they were doing auditions for progressive candidates for this very reason to go and take over Congress. As I've told you before and throughout this, this podcast series, I don't want you to take my word for it, wonder how did I come up with this. I want you to listen to their words. So here's the words of the Justice Democrats. Back in 2016, we put out a call for nominations, trying to capture the diversity of background, of experience of the American electorate, the people that aren't currently represented in office. We got over 10,000 nominations. Out of those 10,000 nominations, we found Alexandria. Now, as you can see, and you can hear from their own words, she had no political uh, experience whatsoever. She went from school to work in a restaurant and being a bartender. They put out this casting call and they've done it for other people in Congress, and we'll, we can get to them in another podcast because that's that's a whole other subject on its own. And what you hear from Cenk Uger in a little while when I talk about the Justice Democrats, you're going to hear what their plans are because they tell you what their plans are. And I've told you before, when the Marxists tell you what they want to do, what they're going to do, and how they plan on doing it, listen to them. Do what Sun Tzu said. Know your enemy. Our enemy is telling us exactly what they're going to do and what their intentions are for us and our liberties. But she also discovered the Democratic Socialists of America, which is an organization. They've been around for quite a while, and there's several members, 
several members of Congress who are already members of this. It's called DSA USA, including Maxine Waters, Sheila Jackson Lee, a lot of them, because they came out years ago uh, with a roster of who it was. I went up to DSA USA's website. I got a list of that roster because they had it prominently on their website. As soon as this, it was a YouTube video, I believe, that came out. And not long after that, when you went back to the website, that list was gone. But it was too late. People already had it. But they were trying to hide the fact of who it was because they know people don't want socialism slash communism. But Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, she went on uh, Firing Line, with now it's hosted by Margaret Hoover on PBS. And she was given a long interview there, and Margaret Hoover asked her about Democrat socialism and what it really is. And I'll just let you listen to AOC give her response to what Democrat socialism really is, in her opinion. Uh, you know, I often say that, to me, democratic socialism is the value that in a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person in America should be too poor to live. And for me, what it really means is establishing a baseline level of economic and social dignity in the United States to say, no matter what happens, we're not going to go below this level, that all we should aim for every person in this country to be covered by health care, to have access to a full college education, uh, as well as trade school, and to make sure that people feel stable in their housing. All the goals that you articulated, mm -hmm. I aspire to as well. Yeah. So what is it about democratic socialism that to you makes it the best vehicle for achieving those ends? I come from the background as an organizer. And in this moment right now, this political moment, democratic social, or perhaps even uh, DSA in particular, is one of the only active organizing groups in the United States that is actively asserting that. You know, I think that so many people tap into those values, and it's not so much about selling an ism, a color, a party, an ideology, as much as it is asserting and advancing the basic aspects of human dignity in 2018. Now, I want you to take note right there of what she said. It's not about a bunch of isms or any of the divisions of things like that. Yet, when they speak, that's all they do speak of. Racism, sexism, all these isms of social justice Everything, all the divisions that I've spoke about before, the social justice movement is a division. And when you read the Biden-Sanders manifesto, no matter what section, but especially in this climate crisis section, they always come up and use the term colonization. So they still go back to what things were and were going on 150, 200 years ago in the Caribbean, in Africa, all of these things. Nothing what's going on in America, yet very clearly... Our Pledge of Allegiance says, and justice for all. In one word, we say it, all. They have to come out and they have to divide everything and everyone down to different groups. And you probably heard it a few years ago, the term intersectionality. So if you have more things after who you were, whether you're black, Hispanic, female, lesbian, transgender, whatever the case, more of those terms you had behind your he, his, she, them, they, this, whatever pronouns, the more you had, the better off you were, just as long as you weren't white, Christian, male. That's just a fact. So you hear the division, you hear what she says, we're, good, we're past isms. No, that's all they are about is isms, feminism, Marxism, socialism, sexism, that's all they're about. And those are her words, not mine. So I want you to hear that. But back to her and where she comes from in her biography. She supports a progressive ideas and some really, really 
progressive, a.k.a. Marxist ideas, such as workplace democracy. Now, the definition of workplace democracy is goes by this, and this is put out by Williams College. Workplace democracy is generally understood as the application of democratic practices such as voting, debate, and participatory decision-making systems in the workplace. We go on to say there are many ways to do this, some much more ambitious than others. Now, if you remember in a previous podcast, I've told you when you hear the leftists use the term ambitious, that means forceful or more forceful. That's all it means when they use that term. Her other ideas, progressive ideas, include single-payer Medicare for all, tuition-free public college and trade schools, a federal job guarantee, the cancellation of all $1.6 trillion of outstanding student debt, guaranteed family leave, abolishing the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, because we have no need for them. There's no problem down on the border. Ending the privatization of prisons, enacting gun control policies, and an energy policy relying on 100% renewables. Now, they talk about, and she says, you'll hear her talk about how they don't want to just abolish fossil fuel industries. They want to integrate and slowly replace. They don't. And I'll show you that. They want it done by 2030. I showed you that in previous podcasts, but I'm going to show you where she says it now and what other senators come in on the same press conference and tell you we're trashing them. Those are their, that's literally their words. Another, I don't know that it's progressive, Marxist. I'm not sure where this monetary theory came from, but you've heard the term modern monetary theory, MMT. And what that's, the way that's, I'll give you the simple definition of it because it does get kind of complex. And I'm not going to go down far into that rabbit trail because that's a whole other subject to itself. But just know this about what she believes and what it entails. It's a macroeconomic theory that describes currencies of public monopoly and unemployment as evidence that a currency monopolist is overly restricting the supply of the financial assets needed to pay taxes and satisfy savings desires. According to MMT, governments do not need to worry about accumulating debt since they can create new money by using fiscal policy in order to pay interest. MMT argues that the primary risk once the economy reaches full employment is inflation, which acts as the only constant on spending. MMT also argues that inflation can be addressed by increasing taxes on everyone to reduce the spending capacity of the private sector. You catch that? Increase taxes on everyone to reduce the spending capacity of the private sector. There's no prohibitions of governmental spending. They spend unlimited and tax you more that 70% that she's been advocating for, and I'll get into that in a little bit too, but 70% marginal tax rate that she and all the Marxists want so that they can keep going on their spending and curtail your spending in the private sector. That's what MMT is. In September 2019, AOC introduced an anti-poverty policy proposal packaged in a bundle called a just society. This just society would take into account the cost of childcare, health care, and new necessities like internet access when measuring poverty. The proposal would cap annual rent increases and ensure access to social welfare programs for people with convictions and illegal aliens. You heard me talk about the Just Society just a second ago. What that really is, is it's a House resolution, House Resolution 109, 
that AOC put forward that actually encapsulates a lot of different acts that she's trying to get put into legislation. I want you to listen to her in her own words as she explains what the just society is in her mind, and then she'll go into each act and break each one of those down of what they're supposed to do and what they're intended to do in her mind once again. And I'm going to break them down individually once she gets through with each one and really interpret what she means and what the actions will be just by history, what those actions will be by the Marxist if they ever get implemented. But at least it will show you also the mindset of where they are and what they want to happen and transform this government and this society into, which is a world-level government and a utopian society. Take a listen. America today is at its wealthiest point than in its entire history. And in fact, many would argue that today the United States represents one of the richest societies in global history. Except among all these record profits, 40 million Americans are living in poverty and 18.5 million Americans are living in extreme poverty, which is measured as less than $2 a day. That's why I'm so excited to introduce a suite of legislation, including five bills and one resolution that begins to chip away at our issues of economic injustice. And we're calling it a just society. If you ever look into the history of Marxism and all these places that guarantee utopia, like the Soviet Union, East Germany, Albania, Venezuela, Cuba, you see there's anything but a utopia. It's a dystopia, which is the other end of the spectrum of utopia, but that's what they want you to believe. That's the propaganda that they sell you. As I've told you before, they pick a word like social, procedural, any type of word and put justice after it, as though justice has any real meaning in its real context when they do this, because that has anything but the meaning of justice when they use it in this manner. The same with this term of just society. The last thing it will be is just. What this will actually be will be a wealth redistribution program under the guise of the Green New Deal. So listen to her as she breaks it down, and she breaks each bill or act, as they call it, down, what it entails, and I'll break it down for what she's saying. Our first bill is called the Recognizing Poverty Act, which seeks to update the national poverty guidelines in order for us to acknowledge modern life, which includes geographic cost of living, the price of health insurance, childcare, and new necessities like internet access. A just society recognizes and eradicates poverty. One thing I want you to recognize, and I know you probably do, is everything that comes out of their mouth of what they think people should have has become a right. Just like everything has become some kind of justice, everything else now, if they think you should have it, has become a right. So instead of calling it, calling it an abortion, they call it reproductive rights. No rights for the baby, but just rights for you to make a decision based on a bad decision earlier in life. When you hear them talking, or when you hear her talking this, you hear her talk about the different types of reimbursements that should be given out for choice of geographical location. Well, the most expensive places in the country, as far as geographical location to live, 
or all Democrat-controlled areas, New York, all of California, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, all because of their policies, all because of the decisions that they've made. So what they don't want to do is they don't want to cut taxes. They don't want to change any of their ordinances, statutes, laws, or anything that they put into place that's driving people, literally driving people out of California, driving businesses out of California, out of Portland, out of Seattle. Instead, they would rather raise taxes and give or redistribute the wealth, as I said a while ago, to people for choices that they've made or for their kids or for their Internet. You know as well as I do, the Internet is not a right. It's something, it's a luxury to have, just like anything else in life. The rights that we have are codified in the Constitution. Everything outside that is on you. But as I said, this isn't about individual liberties and individual rights. This is about implementing a larger government and a highly taxed society to create a utopia for these people's agenda. Just as you hear her say, a just society recognizes and eradicates poverty. When you hear this, think of that word again, redistribution. Redistribution of wealth and what they really want is a basic monthly income, BMI, which is paid out by the government to every American so that everyone has a basic monthly income. And they can only come from one place. Those of us who actually work and pay taxes. So you have to turn, you have to really pay attention to the terms and what's behind what they're actually saying. And you have to study these things to know exactly what their mindset is and what they're really talking about because they talk about them in other previous outings, press conferences, or in their writings. Our second piece of legislation is called the Place to Prosper Act, which creates a national access to counsel fund for all renters in America who are currently facing eviction. It also imposes a national cap of 3% on annual rent increases and begins to pursue penalties on abusive and predatory landlords so that they don't hurt any other family again. A just society treats housing as a right, not a privilege. A just society is merciful. And that's just how merciful they're going to be. Merciful is Nero, Caligula, Diocletian, Commodus. What you hear in that clip is she's saying renters are basically going to become de facto owners. They're going to have their rights because, as she said, housing is now a human right. As I said a while ago, everything is becoming a right now. So you make the renters de facto owners, and you make the owners into second place on their own property. What you really have going in, what she's saying is, you're going to have national rent control. Same thing they have in New York, same thing they have in California. Now, if you talk to anybody from New York that's had any property up there for any time at all, especially over the last 40 years, they'll tell you what rent control has done. That's why you have what you have in the Bronx. You have the big, sprawling ghettos because they can't raise their rents enough to keep up pace with what it takes to maintain them, to make a profit, or anything of that nature. I worked with a guy who lived and grew up in the Bronx, and he would tell me about when he was growing up, his grandma would say, oh, there's going to be a fire tonight. And they'd look across the street, and there's guys carrying loads and loads of cardboard boxes into one of those 
the basements of one of those apartment complex there in the Bronx. And sure enough, that night there'd be a fire because it was cheaper to burn it down than it was to let people sit there and live there in it with rent control because it was bankrupting them. And that's what you're going to have on a national scale with this national rent control because that's all this is. That's what all these fancy words comes down to those three words, national rent control. It will make evictions impossible. That gave them the power during COVID to put a a mandate on a moratorium on evictions that nobody could do anything with their property. There are a lot of people that are months and months behind, but the landlord still had a mortgage to pay. So a lot of them walked away from it. And it's going to happen a whole lot more if they go out and make this the law, which they're trying to do. The other thing that she says, and you have to take into consideration, is when they use terms like predatory and abusive landowners or property owners. Now, in their mind, in a Marxist mind, that's anybody that owns any property because they don't believe in private property. So you got to see, you, we, we have to see what the parameters are. I already know what they are, but what their parameters are going to be that they consider predatory and abusive. But the parameters, as I just stated, is they own private property and they're trying to make money off other people and their human right to their house. That's what it's going to come down to. Mark my words. The Mercy and Reentry Act ends federal discrimination of extending public benefits to people who were formally convicted of a crime and duly paid their debt to society. We know that poverty is one of the leading causes of recidivism, and the only way that we can successfully reintegrate people into society is by making sure that the social safety net can apply to them too. Now as you listen to her, I want you to take note of what she's calling all these different acts, the terminology that Marxist slash propagandist use in naming these acts the way they want you to think they are and what they really are. You heard her say earlier, the Recognizing Poverty Act, the Place to Prosper Act, well, that was the rent control. You don't rent someone else, someone else's house to prosper. You rent it so you have a place to live. So if they're going to be prospering by renting a house because of all these things they want to do, that tells you what the overall mindset is. Listen to this one, the Mercy Reentry Act. Now they want you to have compassion for the convicts that we all sent to jail because they violated the most heinous laws that we have on the books. Now they want you to pay, pay for their jail time, and they want you to pay for their lives afterwards. And we kind of already do because there's a lot of social programs out there for convicts. They're already in place. They just probably don't use them, and they don't use them a lot of times because, well, a lot of times they're just criminals. That's who they are. No matter how much money you give to them, no matter how much you give anything to them, the recidivism rate is going to still be a particular percentage because that's who those people are. But they want you to have mercy and let them reenter with lots more of your tax dollars that she wants to take from you. But if you think that's good, wait till you hear the next act, which is the Embrace Act. Now remember, listen to the terminology used and what's coming with this one, the Embrace Act. Here she is. The EMBRACE Act also ends this type of federal public benefits discrimination based on one's immigration status. A just society embraces our immigrants. Now, there's a lot of things to take away from that small clip right there. The first I want you to pay attention to is the fact that she and many other people in the United States House of Representatives and the Senate, on the left and on the right, make no mistake, they're on both sides, they're pro open borders 
and pro-mass migration. But AOC stands at the forefront for them coming across. Now, there is U.S. representatives to represent their constituents, but they're doing anything but representing their constituents and advocating for people to come there and everyone to embrace them. Otherwise, you'll be racist and you'll be discriminatory. However, when she went home last week and when she was out there giving a speech out on the sidewalk, I'm surprised that she didn't have rocks and things thrown at her, her and Jerry Nadler, who Jerry Nadler has been on this pro-immigration illegal alien for a better part of 20 years because I went and I testified before a committee that he was on back in the February of 2003 dealing with this very issue of sanctuary cities, particularly here in Houston. But listen to what happens when AOC goes back and Gerald Nadler go back and try and give a speech about what they're going to do for illegal aliens and nothing for their own residents and not even listening. In fact, they're actually disregarding their own residents and their constituents of what they're telling them they want their representatives to do. We seek to do... Now, if that sounds to you like AOC has cooperation from fellow New Yorkers, well, that's motion front property for you. And she's definitely there to make her own agenda, which is this part of this green agenda is the mass migration, because you've heard her talk about it. And that's why I'm bringing immigration up to this part. She brings it into the Green New Deal, and then it's all about the green agenda on a worldwide basis. Look at all the migration going on around the world, UK, Italy, all of that that's going on. So now you have it with a representative like her and around this country that they're forcing this in, they're wanting it to come in, and the constituents are giving the blowback that they're hearing, and they're, they're disregarding it because they're on a, they're on a bigger agenda for a world, worldwide agenda, as I've been telling you. And it's not just there. If you remember a few months ago when Ron DeSantis sent 50 illegals up to Martha's Vineyard within 36 hours, they had the National Guard in there loading up on buses and getting them out of their rich community even though they're a sanctuary and they're liberal and they're very compassionate and merciful, as AOC said. But when they got to Cape Cod, they ran into the same problem, and they have about the same response as what they had in New York City. Just take a listen. citizen people living here paying $300 a week. And um, Mara Healy's office called and asked if um, the illegals, over 100 illegal families, could stay here. He said yes, but only if he could get $700 a week. So now they have it up on Cape Cod, kicking American citizens out of hotels where they've been staying for however long they've been staying there, elderly folks, for $300. Now that this guy can make roughly two and a half or one and a half times as much as what he was making with the government's help, subsidizing with our tax dollars, as I said, those citizens are ticked off and they're, uh, they're rebelling. This has been going on particularly heavy in Chicago. And the last podcast I told you about how they're getting ready to basically almost have a civil war in Chicago, especially on the south side in the black communities, because they've been 
putting hundreds and hundreds of them on the south side of Chicago into abandoned abandoned uh, elementary schools and other buildings, and they're not they're not falling for it at all. In fact, it's gotten it's gotten violent in some some aspects. But take a listen here to this uh, to this report in one of the uh, mayoral and city council meetings here the last couple weeks. Outbursts at times so heated, police had to step in. We're talking about city council today and a vote to spend $51 million on helping migrants here in Chicago. CBS2 political investigator Dana Kosloff was there for all the action in Dana's strong feelings all around. Yeah, Erica, and for many different reasons, among them the fact that this $51 million approved today is only a short-term fix and more money will be needed in just weeks. We cannot continue to falsely pick communities against one another. Deep emotional wounds coming to the surface. As black people who have been hurt continuously by the city and country it loves, it ain't our responsibility to take care of everybody else. And anger. We don't want to have to recall anybody. We don't want to have to protest anybody, but we are not going to be ignored, Brandon. Mayor Johnson. Many in Chicago's black community and the city council speaking out against spending $51 million to house migrants, asking when will the help for them finally become a reality. And it cannot be put on the backs of the residents of Chicago without showing them that they're getting something out of this. Mayor Brandon Johnson presiding over his second full city council meeting had to ask for calm more than once. Will the sergeant of arms please restore some order? Police also intervening at one point to allow the meeting to proceed. Ultimately, the measure passed with 34 votes. Many who voted to approve the money, like 49th Ward Alderwoman Maria Haddon, call this an immediate crisis that needs attention. But, she says, so do concerns of the city's black residents. Sometimes it's the people on the ground, as in the residents, the citizens, the constituents, who put it the best, because they're the ones that matter at the end of the day, because that's what this country is all about the constituents who elect representatives to do what they tell them to do to represent their views, which none of these liberals, these Marxists, these one-world thinkers are not doing for their constituent. Sometimes it's best just to let them talk and hear exactly. They put it the best. They can put it better than I ever can because they're there on the ground. Listen to this woman. Just tell it the way it is. She has her own YouTube channel, and she just she holds her feet to the fire. So just take a listen. The people on the south side of Chicago are mad as hell and they ain't gonna take it no more. And I cannot say that I blame them. So last week, city officials met with people in South Shore, Chicago, to tell them that more asylum seekers will be moved to their neighborhood. Specifically, there's an abandoned school that they wanna turn into like a shelter to house what they say is like 200, to 300 immigrants that come into Chicago per day, right? But again, the black people, which is predominantly black on the south side of Chicago, says, nah, uh-uh, we don't want them here. In fact, some of them were saying, build the wall 2024, and just basically they can't come here because they said, y'all wanna allocate all of that money to help immigrants, but what about the people here? Now, they also said that they were told when Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who was leaving, got into office that they would entertain turning that school into some sort of a youth center. So they're like, we want that for us. Also, there's a lot of gun violence and homelessness going on there in the South Side. So they're like, 
how y'all gonna spend all this money to help people who really do not belong here, but there's people here already struggling. So I want y'all to watch this video of this 11 year old boy who said this. Why y'all can't move them to the Hispanic part of town? Why y'all always moving people where we live? Now, y'all remember a couple of months ago, Lori Lightfoot pulled that mess with our black residents as well when they tried to move in immigrants. And it's like, there's other parts of Chicago, right? Like the people are saying, what about the North Side? They're a little bit more affluent. They got a lot of vacant, nice buildings. Y'all could put the uh, migrants in, but why y'all always dumping stuff over here on us? Well, we know why, because black people vote for the Democrats, and let's just keep it a buck. It's the Democrats in Chicago that's making those decisions to dump everybody else onto black people. And so I'm gonna say this to us as black people, stop voting against our better interests. Those Negroes get in there on the help of black people, you know, making black people think, yes, I understand, I'm gonna make sure, and all this other stuff, and then they get in there and be like, oh, I said that? Oh, okay, well, let me think about it while I go help everybody else. Now, Brandon Johnson, the incoming mayor, he says, while I agree that uh, immigrants should get help, but they should not get help before the people that already live there. So he's kind of like trying to toe the line, if you will, straddle the fence instead of saying, nah, they can't come here. They can't come here until every residence in the south side of Chicago has what they need, right? We're not gonna prioritize everybody else over there. So that's what he should be saying, right? But again, that was the work of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who during her term thought it was cute to dump more problems onto black people. And there you have it, right there in her own words. I couldn't say it any better. It's not my words. It's their words, the people, the citizens, the constituents. These are people that probably voted, and I'm, I'm sure, 100% sure, they voted for all these liberals that are on the Chicago City Council for this mayor. And there's a lot more that this mayor's putting up with, with all the crime and the shootings and making excuses for it. That's why Walmarts have pulled out of there and all other kinds of stores. But they're starting to see the light. Now there's too much information out there in the information society. Too many channels, too many YouTubes, too many Spotify's, too many this, too many that. People finding out the reality of what's going on with their elected officials and how they're going against their own interests. Like she said, we need to start voting in our own interest. It's not always along that political line of the Democrat plantation. In fact, I guarantee you it's not. Because now you see the big, bigger picture of what the Marxists have in store and in mind for a bigger world society. They're finding that out down on Maui as well right now where they had that Democrat state government in place for so long, now they're finding out, oh, they're against our interests. In fact, they're against us. In fact, many of them believe that they were burned down in, on purpose, and now they're coming in to claim that area as a green area for climate change. You can't make this stuff up, and I'm not. It's all in writing that I've been reading to you. It's all here in the, their voices of giving speeches and the constituents' voices rebelling against them. A just society affirms workers' rights. That's why in our Uplift Our Workers Act, we've decided to create a worker-friendly score similar to LEED certification for all federal contractors. We then direct the federal government to prefer doing business with worker-friendly contractors. And this includes considerations like worker cooperatives, union memberships, and pro-worker policies like paid family leave, a living wage, health care, and more.
when you hear this Workers' Rights Act, think also back to the Renters, the Prosperous Act. It puts the employees in charge of the company and displaces the people who actually founded the company or the people who actually run the company. When you hear that a company score, think of ESG, think of DEI, all of these things to grade a company on to whether the United States government, which every company pays taxes to, can get to the trough of taxpayer dollars of grants or business, whatever it may be. But yet for her, they're going to give you a score. So if you have enough ESG or if you don't have enough diversity, equity, and inclusion, just think Bud Light. That's what Bud Light was all about. It wasn't the fact of if they were going to lose so much money, because they have, it was a bigger agenda at play on a world level of having DEI and ESG in place for a green agenda, because that's where all the money comes from, or all of these green funds, whether it's from government, whether it's from World Economic Forum, whether it's from Wall Street or anything of that nature, does the major funding. There are bigger things at play here. So I want you to think about those because that's also going to be in place for individuals because the ESG type of score is coming to you individually through your bank accounts and things of that nature. And if you don't believe me, during the pandemic, there were commercials came on from Bank of America and it showed a woman, she was on a field trip, she was the teacher, she was on a field trip with her kids and it shows her looking at her phone and it said right there on the screen ESG score for her on her app. I wish I had screenshotted it. I didn't, but I remember seeing it. So that tells you one thing. As I said, when the Marxists tell you what they're going to do or show you what they're going to do, believe them. That showed you in that commercial what Bank of America is going to do. Now, you kind of coincide that, and I'm going down about a rabbit trail here, but you coincide that with all these banks that are collapsing since about March of this year, starting with Signature Bank and First Republic Bank, Silicon Valley, now that we're getting up to the bigger bank. But to these workers' rights and these renter rights, it goes in line with what Marxism is, and that's the abolition of private property. Now, if you don't believe me that these workers' and renters' rights things are not based in Marxism, let me read you what Marx and Engels wrote into the Communist Manifesto, and I'll read you their own words. They tell you, The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. So when you see this war against CEOs and management and all these people making money, this is where it comes from. Class antagonisms, exploiting the many, the workers, the UAW, the auto workers, by the few, the CEOs, the owners, the founders of companies. They go on to say, in this sense, the theory of the communist may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. And when you talk about, and I, I tell you about wealth redistribution and the mon- modern monetary theory, it really comes out of this tenet of Marxism as well because they tell you that capital is not personal but a social power. It tells you when capital is converted into common property, into the property of all members of society, personal property is not thereby transformed into social property. 
is only the social character of the property that has changed. It loses its class characteristic. And it tells you, capital is a collective product. And only by the united action of many members, nay, and in the last resort, only by the united action of all members of society can it be set in motion. So when you see all of this about all the money needed for the green agenda, the Green New Deal, climate crisis, and the high taxes, and we're about to talk about these 70% taxes that AOC wants and everyone on the left that supports this wants, that's where that idea is coming from. The capital belongs to society, not you. Abolition of your private property, whether it's business or private residence, land, belongs to society. And all goes to, to the collective good. These are straight tenets, straight out of the Communist Manifestos, written by Marx and Engels, as I said, and I read them to you. It's not me forming an opinion from what I hear or what I see or what I think. It's knowing the Communist Manifesto and knowing what they're saying in their agenda, in their resolutions, in everything that they want enacted for their agenda against you and I. When I tell you that it's a global agenda and it's a global idea and it's a global government that they wish, it's not me saying it. It's their very own words, a global community. It's what they want. The UN is the ultimate authority. The UN is the ultimate governmental body higher than any nation because there should be no borders. There should be no sovereignty. There should be no nations. There should be no constitution. Everything should be on a global level through United Nations. If you don't believe me, just listen to AOC in her own words. Finally, a just society is a participatory member in our global community. That's why our final piece of legislation is a resolution that directs the Senate to finally ratify the UN Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Already, 170 international parties have signed on to the Covenant, which guarantees a modern set of human rights that includes housing, healthcare, and education, as well as the right to form a trade union and modern-day dignified work conditions. In a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person should be too poor to live. That's what a just society means to me. And I can't wait to hear what a just society means to you. There's quite a few things in that one clip right there. First and foremost, as you probably know as well as I do, we don't need the Senate to ratify anything about UN rights. We already have the Constitution here in the United States. If other people around the world world want those kind of rights, they need to fight for them the way our founding fathers did and set them in motion for us. Secondly, what they're proposing basically is a parallel set of rights or a parallel constitution without going to the American people as is outlined in the Constitution to do if you wish to amend the, the Constitution. So think of it as a parallel constitution, which I promise you they will want to supersede our constitution in the future because they hate the Second Amendment. No one should have guns. It'll make it a moral, just, safe society as they think that it will be, as it was under Stalin and Pol Pot and Castro and all the other dictators. It also points to a one-world government or a just, just a world government starting with Klaus Schwab or whoever may be in power at that time. So 
think of that global community in those two aspects, and that's just for starters. Now I'm going to turn to the next subject of what AOC wants as well, which is a 70% tax on the rich. And when I say the rich, at $10 million and $1, she wants a progressive tax up to 70%. So listen to these, these bits by her as she discusses what she wants in a press conference with the Green New Deal a few years ago and with Stephen Colbert. Congresswoman, Congresswoman. Do you guys expect this to be offset by higher taxes? So, uh, do you want me? Uh, you go, yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think, and I spoke about this this morning, is that I think that part of this is also really examining the role of government and, and what government is for. And I don't think that, um, I think it's important that we get away, and we also study our economic history, that uh, government expenditure is not always just 100% offset by uh, by a, a tangible increase in that tax that same year and so um, so I think that that we we certainly saw that that we saw we certainly see the Republican embrace of that with the tax cut bill which I which does not generate economic growth um, but I, I I'm looking forward to really communicating that this is an investment you know for every one dollar that we spend on infrastructure we get a return on that investment for every one dollar that we spend on tax cuts we get less than a dollar back and so this is about making smart investments um, and this is about making investments that actually generate returns and not lying about the fact that they generate returns they actually generate returns. now there's a few things in that clip as well that i just want to point out to you Number one, I told you at the very beginning of this whole series that remember the two books, Animal Farm 1984. Animal Farm, the humans equaled the Republican Party. And in 1984, Goldstein equals Trump. Well, here you hear, hear her giving her speech about what they want to do with your money, but they have to bring in the Republicans and how it doesn't do anything for the taxpayer by letting you keep your money. So there's the, there's the foundational difference right there, if you didn't already know. So the Republicans don't do anything economic-wise stimulating the economy by letting you keep your own hard-earned money every two weeks. What does stimulate the economy is them taking it from you and putting it into one of these green agendas that cost trillions and trillions of dollars, their own words. It's an investment, which the government is there not to be an investor they're there to use the taxpayer dollars to give the companies and individuals who can do the job better than the government can do, which is every job, because the government can't do anything right. And I'll give you the example of Obama's healthcare.gov. That website was supposed to launch and be the, the epitome of websites and what you could do with government. But as we all know, it crashed and failed minutes after it was launched. It took weeks and weeks for it afterward to get up and running properly. And just the website itself came with a price tag of $300 million just for a website. So that tells you what's going to happen with this Green New Deal and all of these people investing the money, not to what helped you, but what's going to help them, especially financially, because they know where all the companies, where the money is going to and where to invest their stocks, just like Nancy Pelosi has done as well as Granholm, the energy secretary, who's been really grilled this week in con congressional 
sessions and hearings about where her and her husband have had their money invested with Ford, especially the electrical vehicle side of Ford, once they started getting all these loans and grants to Ford for billions of dollars. And as I said, she went on the Stephen Colbert show, and they discussed the 70% tax rate. Take a listen to what she had to say with Stephen Colbert. Um, you have proposed a 70% tax um, on uh, uh, rich folks. Now, <laughs> I have no, I have no, I have no dog in this uh, fight. I'm just curious, what, how would that work? <laughs> um, no. And I want to say, hey, I just want to say, yay. <laughs> what, and, and. So I think this is What a... if some of the money's in the Cayman Islands? Would yeah. <laughs> how would that work? So I think uh, this is something that we often see, too, with Fox News. It's like, they want to take all your money. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about a 70% marginal tax rate, it's not on all of your income. It's on your 10 millionth and one dollar. So after you make $10 million in one year, your dollars after that start to get progressively taxed at a much higher rate. And really what that is, is that it's the tax interpretation of one answer to the question of uh, how much is, at, how, at what level are we really just living in excess? And what kind of society do we want to live in? And do we want to live in a city? Um, for example, do we want to live in a city where billionaires have their own personal Uber helipads when you people... Can you can yeah. get those? Yeah. Oh, because yeah. Because the traffic in Lincoln Tunnel sucks. Yeah. Okay, good to know. Sorry, so, go ahead. So do we want these kind of, you know, folks with helipads in the same city and the same society as people who are working 80-hour weeks and can't feed their kids? And these, this, this kind of tax rate was the norm up until the early 80s. It was, it was. This is not a new idea. In fact, you know, people are yelling, you know, she's a socialist, she wants 70% marginal tax rates. Under Republican, pres uh, Republican administration, Dwight Eisenhower, we had 90% marginal tax rates. Wow. Yeah. But I want to point out that she's a socialist, she wants 70% tax rates. Those are both accurate, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. Okay. <laughs> Democratic, well, though. Democratic. Democratic socialist. Democratic, Democratic socialist. Very okay. different. So there you hear where they want the class separations that if you're a billionaire and you can afford a helipad, we don't want you in the same city as people who can't afford anything. If you are making that much money, we want to take it from you at a 70 percentile tax rate. Now, make no mistake, Stephen Colbert's annual salary on his show was $15 million. So basically, if you went 70% of that extra $5 million between $10 million and $15 million, and they taxed that at 70%, that would leave him about $1.5 million of his own money. If that's what he wants, then let him give that up. But you hear their, their separation of classes. The billionaires shouldn't even be in the same city. Now, I told you, if there's anything but a just society with them, there's anything but justice, there's anything but mercy if you don't go down the road and bow down to their God of environment and green agenda. You probably also heard that she had to bring Fox News in there because theoretically that's what Republicans watch or used to watch before the Tucker Carlson incident. But she had to bring them in there trying to deflect of who she is, which is just a socialist. There's no difference between a democratic socialist, a socialist, or Marxist. It's all one and the same. Don't let the words 
fool you or deflect you from where they're at, or will they point the finger over at their at them, keep staring them in the eyes of what they're saying about themselves, because they reveal who they are, and she revealed who she is. Yes, she wants seventy percent tax. Yes, she is a socialist. So as you hear her talk that she wants to tax at a 70, 70 percentile range on rich people, because it's always rich people. That's who they have to demonize first and foremost, that they make way too much money. They live in excess. Disregard that they may have started a, a corporation or a company that they they founded and they, they made it that successful and employ however many people. They have to be demonized and they have to be, be made as look as though they are the bad guy. So how do you get people that want to go along with taxing other American citizens at 70%? Well, class division is one. But as you always hear them, and I've told you before, fear is the biggest, the biggest motivator. And we saw that the last few years with COVID. People wore masks. They took vaccines that weren't proven, boosters that weren't proven, and now they're coming out to show that they're worse than the actual virus itself. They locked people down, cities, countries, entire countries. They locked down, actually even placed people in camps in Australia that didn't and refused to take the vaccine. So fear is the big motivator. And as I've told you before, the threat to humanity is their call, their siren call of fear. And if you go back and you listen to the podcast entitled John Kerry, which is about John Kerry, you'll hear the audio clip from him and they're talking about everything is a national security regarding climate change, the food supply, the economy, the labor market, everything is a national security issue at that point in time, because that's what they, they build up the foundation to be. And if you go to AOC's campaign website back from 2018, she has one of the sections on there. It's called Mobilizing Against Climate Change. And she goes into that, and she talks about how the UN, one of the UN reports, not on here, but she talks separately about how one of the UN reports tells us that we have 12 years to exist if we don't do anything about climate change. And I'm sure y'all have all heard that number. We have 12 years left. Al Gore said that like 20 years ago. Now she's repeating the same mantra of 12 years. But on her website, her campaign website, She's very direct about what's going to be and what she wants. And again, as I said, whenever they talk about things, and in this case, global warming, they call it climate change and now climate crisis, she states that in order to address runaway global climate change, so they always have to use these keywords of like runaway. There's nothing runaway and there's nothing crisis. And they tell you that, she strongly believes and supports transitioning to the U.S. to a carbon-free, 100% renewable energy system and a fully modernized electrical grid by 2035. She goes on to say that by encouraging the electrification of vehicles, sustainable home heating, distributed rooftop solar generation, and the conversion of the power grid to zero emissions energy sources, Alexandria believes we can be 100% free of fossil fuels by 2035. Now, remember that statement because I'm going to play something for you in a little bit where she's talking about we can we have to transition to keep the miners and the people that are in the industry in the loop. And I'm going to play you all of the contradictions 
what they say and what they do and what they've written. And her site goes on to say that Alex believes in recognizing the relationship between economic stability and an environmental sustainability. And it's time to shift course and implement a Green New Deal, which is what they introduced in that H.R. 109 that we just talked about and her Just Society. It says, here are the key words again. I've told you when you go back and you read the Communist Manifesto, there's key words that Marx said, that Obama used, and now they use. It goes on to say, a transformation that implements structural changes to our political and financial systems in order to alter the trajectory of our environment. So a fundamental transformation or structural change to our political system and our financial system. Now, there's a whole lot that can be done on a different podcasts about those two things, the political and the financial systems. Political, you know what they want to do with the Supreme Court, how they want to take away the filibuster, and the financial system where they want to, and it's, it's being done right now, the central bank, bank digital currency, the CBDC, to do away with paper money and just go through a complete digital currency regulated and ran by the federal government and the Fed. So she says that right there, campaign website. And she goes on to say on her website that climate change is the single biggest national security threat for the United States and the single biggest threat to worldwide industrialized civilization. And the effects of warming can be hard to predict and self-reinforcing. We need to avoid a worldwide refugee crisis by waging a war for climate justice through the mobilization of our population and our government. This starts with the United States being a leader on the actions we take both globally and locally. So when I tell you that they want a global type of government, global oversight, I'm not making this up. I'm reading their words and I'm playing you their audio of to what they want and what they're what they're trying to implement. And they're on the they're they're pretty far down the road of implementing it if you haven't noticed. I also told you how they, you know, just like I said a while ago, they they take everything to the highest of drama and that global warming has to be addressed and immediately avert human extinction. And that's what she believes. Those are her words. But listen to her. These are her words, her audio, not me, so that you know it's not me saying it, it's her. Because climate change, climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not Not just as a nation, but as a world. And in order for us to combat that threat, we must be as ambitious and innovative in our solution as possible. So what we are doing today and in introducing these resolutions here today is that it's not a bill, it is a resolution. And what this resolution is is doing is saying this is our first step. Our first step is to define the problem and define the scope of the solution. And so we're here to say that small incremental policy solutions are not enough. They can be part of a solution, but they are not the solution unto itself. There is no justice and there is no combating climate change without addressing what has happened to indigenous communities. That means that there is no fixing our economy without addressing the racial wealth gap. 
That means that we are not going to transition to renewable energies without also transitioning frontline communities and coal communities into economic opportunity as well. That is what this is about. It is comprehensive, it is thoughtful, it is compassionate, and it is extremely economically strategic as well. Now there's a few things from that clip that I want you to concentrate on. And if you remember, I talked about in previous podcast about when they used the word ambitious in the Paris Agreement, or when John Kerry is talking, or any of the World Economic Forum people are talking and they use the word ambitious, just substitute the word forceful or by force for ambitious because that's the implant they're talking about plans they want to implement ambitious plans implemented or forced upon the people like Mao Zedong's five years plans that he carried out back in the 50s and 60s that came about to the extermination of approximately 100 million people in China or think of the forceful implementation of the agrarian society in Cambodia to the tune of 2 million Cambodians being killed in the genocide by the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. As you could hear, and as I've told you, and as you're seeing the theme of division, every time they come out with one of their points, they have to point to some group and marginalize them and make them seem as though they are a victim in today's society. So you heard it with the indigenous peoples. I pointed out to you what they used as a Navajo Nation as their example, and all the corruption within the Navajo Nation with that $1.66 billion that they've received of fraud, waste, and abuse by their own management teams within that reservation. And she talks about the racial wealth gap. Well, there is no racial wealth gap. It's policies within those Democrat cities and policies that have been implemented in factories, the areas of the country, the factories and production that have hit those Democrat cities the most, whether it's the steel industry, any of the manufacturing type of Rust Belt, Midwest industries that are now over in China or completely have closed down due to OSHA or clean air, clean water, whatever, they've been so restrictive that now they've all moved to China. So when you hear say things that they need policies or going to implement policies that are thoughtful and compassionate, well, who are they going to be thoughtful and compassionate about? And who are they going to be thoughtful and compassionate against? Well, when you heard the, the clip about the 70% tax rate on rich people, like I said, the division between the rich and the poor has historically always worked. It always will. And that's going to be their plan there because that's what she talks about strategic, economically strategic, go back to what I was talking about a while ago, wealth redistribution, basic monthly income. That appeals to everyone that's making nothing right now, especially if it's from rich people making 10 or plus million dollars. They don't need it. Give it to these people over here, even though they're not going to work for it, and even though they've never worked for it, we're going to take from the rich, give to the poor, because it made a good story for Robin Hood. I'm going to play you a couple of clips, and I want to show you how they speak out of both sides of the mouth even at the same press conference. The first one I'm going to play for you is AOC talking about transitioning from fossil fuels over to green energy because she believes we should be at 100% green energy. I'm going to play it for you so you can hear the end of it, and I'll come back in and I'll, I'll break that down for you, this clip. And then I'm going to play right on the heels of that, the next speaker up talking about fossil fuels. Take a listen to this. Beautiful. 
Yes, sir. Okay, do you want Absolutely. to take it? Yeah. Sure. Um, and again, I, I, a lot of this goes into the actual structure of what we're doing. We're laying forth the resolution, and uh, and the resolution outlines the scope of the bills that will kind of be considered Green New Deal projects or bills. And so I think that, that taking that approach can strategically really bring us together. One of those things that I'm really looking forward to is figuring out how we fully fund coal miners' pensions, because it is that economic fear that is that is kind of preventing us from transitioning. So we do, and we we are placing the, the workers in those communities, not the fossil fuel corporations, but the interests of the workers first. And I and I know, and I know that we all have a commitment to making sure that we are not putting one type of energy forward at the expense of a community's way of life. What you didn't hear at the beginning of that clip, and I meant to put the question in there to you, was a reporter off to the side. They're doing this press conference over around the Capitol. But the question placed to her was, what specific plans do you have to make the palatable argument towards fossil fuels to people in Appalachia and the miners and the people in that industry? And so you heard her talk about how they're not going to put one type of energy forward at the expense of the communities and those communities' ways of life. Now, I'm about to play you a clip from a Oregon Senator, U.S. Senator uh, Ron Wyden, saying exactly the opposite of what he plans to do. But a couple of other things for her clip that she just spoke about was funding the miners' pensions. Now, if you're a miner and you hear AOC or any of the Democrats or anybody in government talking about funding your pension, first thing that has to come to your mind is Social Security and how it's been a cluster since day one or Obamacare since day one, or you look at the way that the U.S. government has treated veterans through the VA for decades. Well, they better have some cause for concern when they want to take over their pension fund and say they want to make sure it's fully funded. But I want you to listen to Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon. He came up right after this. AOC just told you, told everyone that they're not going to put one type of energy forward at the expense of the community's way of life and see if you get the same message from what he says when he takes the microphone. And I am here today to say, as the senior Democrat on the committee that writes tax policy in the Senate, the Senate Finance Committee, it's my intention to work with all of these good people to throw the dirty energy tax relics of yesteryear into the garbage can and work to put clean energy front and center. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like they're not putting one in front or at the expense of the other. When he sits there and tells you, I'm in charge of the finance committee and we're going to put this thing in fossil fuels and everything about that community into a garbage can. Their words, not mine. And that's where I want you to make up your minds of what really is being said, what really isn't intended, and what's being put out there to the public. Because those two people just contradicted each other right next to each other. Now, as I've said, and I've told you, the AOC's environmental plan, the Green New Deal, it they say advocates, but it's, it's going to be a demand, a demand going over and transitioning over to 100% renewables, and also doing it by 2030, because that's what the Paris Climate Accords and Agreement that's what it calls for, and that's what the World Economic Forum calls for. Because remember I told you the three numbers, 2030, 2050, and 1.5, which is 2030 is when they want to 
have so many things offline, 2050 being net zero and 1.5 degrees Celsius is where we need to be so that the earth just doesn't melt like a wax candle. At that time, put an end to fossil fuels. Within those 10 years of the Green New Deal, which was put forward in 2020, and to have that done by 2030, as I told you before. So we had that 10-year window to get all these done because the earth is going to end as we know it within 12 years, if you remember, uh, a couple of different times. But it'd be done by 2030, which is now basically six years away. And Forbes came out and they, made, they did an article and they talked about how much it would actually cost, which is about roughly $2.5 trillion per year for six of these programs that AOC has put forward. Let me just give you an idea of what they say and what they're talking about because they've, they've gone in and studied it because that's what Forbes does. And one of the first things they talk about is that this, this Green New Deal that contains so much ambition on climate as well as social issues, then it's going to cost a bundle and it's going to cost a lot more money than any extra taxes on the wealthy can raise. So that 70% she's talking about doing on the wealthy, this is not going to be enough. So guess where it's going to be coming down to? It's going to be coming down to everyone within the country because that's the way these programs work. And Forbes goes on to break it down, and they tell us that still there's enough to attach broad estimates on the expenses involved in AOC's Green New Deal. Here are figures for just some of its goals. The proposed expansion of renewables to provide 100% of the nation's power of the nation's power needs would, according to respected physicist Christopher Clark, about $2 trillion over 10 years. The deal's desire to build a smart power grid for the entire country would, according to the Electric Power Institute, cost $40 billion a year or $400 billion over 10 years. According to several sources, AOC's aspiration to draw down greenhouse gases would cost upwards of $11 trillion or about $110 billion a year for 10 years. The deal's goal to upgrade every home and industrial building in the country to state-of-the-art safety and energy efficiency would run some $2.5 trillion over 10 years, or $250 billion a year. This figure may well underestimate, considering that there are 136 million dwellings in the U.S. An upgrade of each would conservatively cost $10,000 a unit, on average, or near $1.4 trillion dollars. And this does not even include the industrial and commercial structures, nor does it include upkeep. The Green New Deal also aspires to provide jobs guaranteed at a living wage. A government assessment of similar proposal by Sen Senator Cory Spartacus Booker from New Jersey puts the cost of such a program at $543 billion in its first year, though the cost thereafter would fall the cumulative expense over 10 years would come to some $2.5 trillion. And the goal of developing a universal single-payer health care system would, according to MIT Amherst, a study of similar plans put forward by Senator, Communist Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, to come to about $1.4 trillion a year. So that's where that would be just on a few of the items. And that's how it's going to be a wealth redistribution program and bilking everybody, not just the rich. It always trickles down to everyone of who's going to be paying what. And it's going to be everyone at 70%, if not more, because that's what Marxism does. It bankrupts everybody and puts everybody into misery. 
And last but not least are these bullet points about AOC and her bio. And this has been, I know, a long, a long session about just her bullet points of her bio. But as I said, it takes a lot of rabbit trails to find out who these people are, who they really are. We know we see all the clips that people want us to see, but you really have to go down deep into who they really are, their psyche, and what their moral fabric is. And she was one of the big proponents back during 2020, 21 of defunding the police. Well, we see where New York City sits right now with defunding the police and a lot of officers walking away, retiring, whatever the case may be. And now they're getting flooded with, with the illegals. And you heard them in the streets shouting at her and Nadler in the previous clip. So that's where these policies are getting, getting these liberal cities and these liberal politicians and the people are getting fed up with it. That's just, the, as I said, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And this Green New Deal is just the tip of the iceberg. And what you've heard and what you know about this whole thing is a snowflake on the tip of the iceberg. And that's why I'm getting very deep into all these details with these people and with these accords, these agreements, these treaties, because this is how they are going to affect your life all the way down to your household level. If you remember earlier, I told you I would delve into the Justice Democrats a little bit later on in the podcast. That's where I want to focus attention for a little bit right here. Because the whole picture of this podcast series is to show you who's behind the scenes from different levels inside the government, outside the government, in the United States, outside the United States. And for AOC in this podcast, dealing with AOC, the Justice Democrats were 100% her doing. As I told you, she was a casting call. She answered that call out of 10,000 people. But the main people behind the Justice Democrats and the founder was Cenk Uger, or is Cenk Uger of the Young Turks. If you've seen either YouTube or his videos or any of his channel, whatever it may be, him and Anna Kasparian, which is an odd couple of an Armenian and a Turk, that's a whole other subject. But they're the ones that were behind the elections of Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Cory Bush was their first one, AOC, Raul Gravalha out of Chicago, who is a very open borders guy. That's who you're dealing with, and that's who, AO, who, that's who supports AOC outside the Democratic Socialist of America's association that she talked about just a little while ago. But I want to give you an idea, in their own words, of who the Justice Democrats are, what Cenk Uger wants, what they're after, and what they're really all about, because it's not about just having a say-so in politics. It's about a takeover of way of life. It's not about representing the people. It's about representing an ideology, their ideology, and that's all that matters. So take a listen to them. I think they have maxed out on incompetence. So that is why we must choose a new path, and that is what we embark upon today. What we need to do is take over the Democratic Party, and as Martin Luther King said when he did the Civil Rights Movement, he said he was doing it not just to help African Americans, but to save the soul of America. Here we're going to try to save the soul of the Democratic Party by boarding the Democratic Party's ship and taking it over. How are we going to do that? We're going to run strong progressives. From now on, there will be a new wing of the Democratic Party, and it will be the Justice Democrats. We will seek social justice, economic justice, racial justice, and plain old justice, justice. Let's break this down a little bit. When you hear them, as I've stated, you know, when they say progressives, just substitute that for Marxist. And when these people speak, they can't speak within the authority of what their own agenda is going to do to stand on its own. They always either have to bring somebody in to contradict it, like Trump or Republican Party, 
or they have to bring in someone that they want to use as a downtrodden patsy. In this case, it's Martin Luther King. And they want to try and equate the ideology of the Green New Deal, of their religion, environment, with what Martin Luther King did, which was to bring freedoms to people, specifically the black community, in the 1960s. However, the last thing that this Green New Deal and their agenda is doing is bringing any type of freedoms. But as you've seen, and I'm going to point out some more, how confining it is on you, your everyday life, whether it's gas stoves, electric vehicles, and now, just this week, Biden coming out and introducing legislation, or passing actually through the EPA, more restrictions on gas furnaces to be put in within the home, within your home. So the last thing they're doing is bringing any type of freedoms as Martin Luther King did. They're coming down to restrict even more as Mao, as Lenin, as Stalin, as Pol Pot. But listen to what else he has to say in regards of what their plans are for Congress. We're going to run hundreds of candidates, and we're going to primary all the de establishment Democrats. So we're not going to be like, ah, oh, is it Chuck Schumer? Maybe yes, maybe no, right. right? No, it's a hard no. But wait a minute now. Are you really going to primary vulnerable Democrats? Yeah, that's the whole point. If in 2018 we don't achieve our grand vision of, of a wholesale change in two years, which is very, very hard, we know that, right? You get... Are you kidding me? If you got six, let alone 12, let alone 24 people in Congress, you know what would happen in Washington? People would freak the hell out. They'd be like, oh, my God, what in the world? These guys would that had no money to begin with, no nothing to begin with, just put 24 people in Congress. Look, we want hundreds. We want to, we want to replace Congress. When you hear this clip right there, I want you to keep a few things in mind. Number one, when he says, we want to take over Congress, you need to get in mind, along with the Green New Deal, the Green Agenda from the World Economic Forum all the way out to 2050, this is a generational play. This isn't something for the two-year term for somebody or a six-year term for a senator. This is a generational play. And beyond. Because when someone gets in to the House or to the Senate, it's very hard to get them out because they start getting all the money. They have all the free flyers. They're called Barneys, if you didn't know. They're called Barneys, those mailers that you get in your mail that are worthless to tell, them, tell you what they've been doing and how many accomplishments and how great they are while sitting in that chair that you put them in there in D.C. Those are called Barneys, and they're free because they come from their office as a as an informational bulletin, if you will. So know that this is a generational thing that maybe it's not you. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandkids, depending on what you have and where you are in life. But that's what this is. And also know that they want to tie this in as AOC has been saying through this whole thing, in with human rights. And when they tie that in, is that, I told you, like that parallel constitution that they were talking about, that she wanted the Senate to ratify that UN Bill of Rights or Human Rights, and they want that to be a parallel constitution, basically. And then probably, and more than likely on their side, supersede it, as I said, because they see that as more moral 
and merciful than having a constitution that lets you spread misinformation, own guns, own ammunition, because those are the scourge of the earth. In order to do that, as you've heard them over the last couple of years, they would have to do something. If they went and they took over Congress, they could then pack the Supreme Court, do away with the Supreme Court, which is probably what they would do because they hate the Supreme Court. They hate Clarence Thomas. They've done this all the way back. For those of you old enough to remember, before Clarence Thomas, when they did that to a guy named Robert Bork, if you've never read his book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah, I suggest you get it and read it. It is very good. Robert Bork was a very intelligent guy, very uh, constitutional scholar, if you will. And they brought in all kinds of things, and it's what they call being borked because they got him disqualified from being on the Supreme Court. Then Clarence Thomas came in, and they tried to do the same thing with him 30 years ago that they did with Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh when they brought in uh, Anita Hill, for those of you old enough to remember. If you're not, go back. Look it up and research it and study what happened back that time with Clarence Thomas. But that's that's how these things tie in together. It's not just one thing in a vacuum. There's a process and a reason and an end game for what they're doing. And as I said, Clarence Thomas was 30, 33 years ago. So this is going to extend out another 30 years to 2050 for this Green New Deal. And it's a long play, a long-term play, a generational play, but one that you have to pay attention to and these things that you have to tie together. I would also venture to say, and to point you in the direction, back in his first or second State of the Union address, where Obama literally attacked the Supreme Court, who was sitting there on the front rows, and could say nothing in return about their, one of their decisions on corporations. Now, I'd never seen this before, and I don't know that it had ever been done before, but I remember watching it and seeing it, and I remember saying to myself, that's a Marxist move. When one branch attacks the other and tells everyone how they are wrong, yet that other branch can't make a response at that point in time, they're a captive audience. And I remember it was, uh, I believe, John Roberts sitting there shaking his head, no, as in, no, you're wrong, you idiot, because Obama is an idiot. Last thing he is is a legal scholar. He's just a community activist. But he started that whole thing about attacking the Supreme Court in total, as you see them doing now. Here are his words at the State of the Union address. With all due deference to separation of powers, Last week, the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. I don't think American elections should be bankrolled by America's most powerful interests, or worse, by foreign entities. They should be decided by the American people. And I'd urge Democrats and Republicans to pass a bill that helps correct. So there you hear him, in his own words, going after 
the Supreme Court justices right there in front of him. Now, I know that did happen back in 1989 and 90 time frame with Bork and Clarence Thomas, 91 in that whole time frame. But that's where it, that's where it all originated. Obama picked it up in that time frame with what he didn't like and called them out right there and attacked them. And now you see it where this last election, they if Trump had won, they were going to pack the Supreme Court because Trump got his nominees in there the way that it's supposed to by the Constitution. So another indicator of how much they hate this Constitution. But I want you to go ahead and listen to this next clip about what they're really all about in their own words, which I've already been telling you. It's not about running this country by the way of the Constitution. The founders wanted it ran, laid it down in the Constitution and laws for it to be ran. It's all about power and ramming through their ideology of Mother Earth and environmentalism. Let's take a listen. Washington doesn't care about beseeching. That's not how it works. They care about power. So primaries are an exercise in power. It's way past time that progressives exercise their power in this country. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. When you hear someone like Chink Uger or AOC, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Adam Schiff, any of those guys on the Marxist left talking about it's about power, believe them. Anything that comes out of their mouth is about getting power. All you had to do was watch any of the impeachment hearings, the first or the second, but especially the first with Trump, where they had secret hearings in the basement of the house underneath the Capitol where no one could hear, no one could see, no cameras, anything of that nature. When you think of power of what these people want and what their agenda is, especially coming up from the very top of the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, who came out and very openly said, you'll own nothing and be happy. That is their agenda. Their agenda is for you to be out of coal-based electrical plants and be into energy-producing solar, wind, hydro, these things that don't work, which was proven here in Texas back in 2021 during that freeze that we had. But it's proven everywhere. It can't sustain itself especially with all the electric vehicles they want to bring online with all these charging stations around the country. California can't even support itself during the summertime. But you also have to look at them exerting even more power, especially where Democrats slash Marxists love to exert their power, which is in taxation. And you heard that with AOC at 70%. You heard that from the other guy, Ron Wyden, who's going to get all the tax breaks for the fossil fuels and put them in the garbage can. So you can guarantee you, once they start running out of the rich people to tax, the rich people start leaving like they did in France under Macron when he came out with a 75% taxation on the rich people over there. They just picked up their belongings and went into Belgium or to Luxembourg or wherever they went to. Same thing will happen here. The people that can leave are going to leave. And then you're going to be down at the bottom rung. And then who are you going to tax? The people that were re- relying on the rich people to get their tax money to pay them that basic monthly income we talked about? The other thing that they love in the power is censorship. And that has come to light like a floodlight since COVID. And we saw it. Saw it with repression of masks, with lockdowns. You saw it with the censorship on YouTube, on Twitter, before Musk took over, with the help of the federal government, the CIA, and the FBI. These are facts. These have come out in congressional hearings. These came out when Elon Musk bought Twitter and started releasing all of the data. Those are facts. The IRS under Obama. Lois Lerner, it was found out 
in congressional hearings factually came out and repressed and suppressed conservative 501c3 applications and groups and specifically went after Catherine Albrecht and True the Vote. Look at what they've done with Dinesh D'Souza. He got himself in a little bit of hot water with the actions he took, but they came out after all that. He was involved with, there with True the Vote. They really came after True the Vote in a hard way because True the Vote was exposing a lot of the things that were going on with the voter rolls. But you look at what Twitter and especially YouTube went in with the government when people were talking about ivermectin or any of the things that they didn't want said, they demonetized people, they deplatformed them, they banned them all at the behest of the CIA and federal agents that were there with them back and forth, either via email or phone calls, or they're at their building with them, giving Twitter and YouTube employees secret clearances for the day or for whatever time they needed them so they could see things and censor them out and pressure them to delete posts off of their platform. You look at what Mark Zuckerberg did during the 2020 election with his $400 million of Zuckbucks to have all these mules work for him, all these drop boxes, all these things behind the scenes that people didn't really know about. And look at what they're doing with the digital currency of the CBDCs or the central bank digital currency. If they do away with the cash dollar and go to just pure digital currency, look out. Don't say it can't happen. Don't say they won't use it because Justin Trudeau used it against the truckers in Canada because they were protesting things up there and he wanted them shut down. And GoFundMe even seized all the money that was to them and they were going to disperse it to wherever they wanted to to the court said, uh, no, you have to give that money back to the people who sent it because they didn't send it for what you wanted to go to. They sent it for this purpose. If you're not going to use it for that. You have to give it back to them. And that's exactly what happened. So when I tell you that it's a big power play with this green agenda through taxation, through hedge funds buying or going into all these pension funds like mine and using trillions of dollars to force these other companies like Exxon and Shell and BP and all these smaller fossil fuel companies to convert over and worry about sequestration and carbon credits, carbon caps, all these type of things, that's what they're doing, and that's how they're flexing their muscle. And it's not just the World Economic Forum who is doing this. The WEF is just the catalyst, the main puppets or the main puppet masters behind people like Biden, John Kerry, AOC, Gavin Newsom, Kathy Hochul, governor of New York. All of these things that they're pulling the strings on these people within this country and within the federal and state governments that they can control and bypass any constitutional rights that we may have or try to and get into all these places, as I keep reiterating, of electrical vehicles, gas stoves, now gas furnaces, shutting down coal-fired power electrical plants that we've been relying on, never speaking of building nuclear reactors, which are the cleanest source of energy anywhere and can produce it for tens of thousands of homes and businesses in one fell swoop. So there's a lot of big players, the largest money in the history of mankind being placed at this one agenda of green agenda and the religion of environmentalism, the cult of environmentalist. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. As I've said before, I know it's a lot of detail. I know it's a lot of minutia. But these are the things that we have to get down into to learn who's doing what, what the agenda is, and how it's going to affect all of us collectively and individually, and how it's going to 
really try and override our constitutional rights and the way of life that as we know it and as we have known it and it could be eroded within a generation 2030 2050 that's what they're pushing for i know there's a lot of ground that was covered by or on aoc today and that's just as i said the tip of the iceberg i'm going to provide some links below uh, to the green new deal to justice democrats to a few of these things that you can go and find them on youtube and as you know then youtube will populate things that'll be related to what those subjects are i highly suggest that you do your research into this and keep up with current events what's going on i'm going to provide a link to a guy uh, he goes his youtube show goes by mr reagan show he does excellent job with excellent content with his videos uh, on a multitude of things with aoc with justice democrats with a lot of things that are going on and have gone on. He's, he's an excellent YouTube channel. I'll post his link. I suggest that you go up and watch him and subscribe to his channel. And do some research there on YouTube. Just click around or type in things that you might think of related to this. And there's a lot of good channels out there. I'd also suggest that as current events, staying up with what's going on on Maui see what's going on with what the government, federal and the state government, are doing as far as the name of the Green Agenda. It's gone silent here recently in the last week or so. But keep up with these things. They're going to affect you one way or another, if not you directly, then your fellow Americans. But it will make its way to you eventually. So thank you for listening in on Trench Warfare Politics. The next one will be on the rest of the authors of this segment of this Biden-Sanders Communist Manifesto. We'll delve into them uh, just a little bit, point out to you who they are, who you're dealing with, and they are in, most of them are, are in the House of Representatives. So until next time, stay in the trenches, keep your heads up, and watch for the incoming fire from the Marxist left.